начало весны совсем не под пару. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host Sean Gillery. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Centers for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like yourself, if you like this podcast and listen to it regularly and like to help us out, please consider becoming a patron by going to Patreon.com/EuroNot. Or yournot.org. Uh, there will be links in the show notes for this episode. So please take a moment to do that to become a patron. Your patronage is incredibly helpful for us to do the type of work we're doing. So this is the fourth episode in the, our series, Religion in Post-Socialist Societies. If you listen to the past three ones, you'll know that this was a spring interview series I organized at Reese at the University of Pittsburgh with Susanna Bogomil from the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences. I'm here with Susanna Bogomil to introduce our fourth interview. It's with uh, Lap Yang Kung and Feigang Yang on Protestantism in China. Susanna, I, I don't know about you, but I came into this interview knowing nothing about religion in China. I mean, zero. And I found this so fascinating because I had just no idea, particularly the number of Protestants in China today. This was really enlightening. When we started organizing this, why is China included into this series? The, the most honest answer is because I know nothing about religion in China. So I was also fascinated in this podcast and in this discussion. But seriously, you know, China is still a communist state. So when we discuss Soviet Union and former republics, we discuss something which is finished. But here it is still a state, then it is the most populated state with so various ethnic and religious groups. And I think that because of that, we decided to make China. But of course, you can ask, and if we had more time, that would be great to discuss religion in Cuba, for instance, in North Korea. But we didn't have so much space. That's why we chose China, which is so great. And the podcast is really gives a lot of insight, especially for us from the Western world, to understand a little bit that there is no China and only the prime <laughs> person of China. But it is a really a huge society constructed of very various, various groups. Well, thank you very much, Susanna. So today we have two guests, Fengeng Yang and Kun Lap Yan. Fingeng Yang is a professor of sociology and the founding director of the Center on Religion and the Global East at Purdue University. He's the author of Atlas of Religion in China, Social and Geographical Contexts, Religion in China, Survival and Revival under Communist Rule, and Chinese Christians in America, Conversion, Assimilation, and Adhesive Identities. He's also the co-editor of more than 10 books. Kun Lap Yan is an associate professor and director of the Center for Quality Life Education and the Dean of the Institute of Advanced Study in Asian Cultures and Theologies at the Divinity School of Chengchi College at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And his research focuses on religion and society, Christian ethics and theology, and he is the author of numerous books and articles in both Chinese and English. So here's Feng Yang Yang and Kun Lap Yan. As I said, admittedly, probably saying it too much about my lack of understanding or knowledge of religion in China, but you both have focused extensively on issues of religion. And I always ask my guests this, and I'm curious how you came to the topic. And let's start with you, Lapian. Well, I'm from Hong Kong. I also stay in Hong Kong. As a citizen in Hong Kong, we also consider ourselves as Chinese. Even though, you know, the people in Hong Kong always claim that, saying that we are the Hong Kongers. Okay. But we always consider, most of us consider ourselves as Chinese. So in other words, that, you know, what happened in China is uh, very relevant to the situation in Hong Kong. Especially, you know, during the time in last century when Hong Kong was facing 1997. So this is the time when the Chinese government resumed the sovereignty over Hong Kong. So that is why we have to understand what happening in China 
or what we can learn from the experience of the Chinese people facing the Chinese Communist Party in order that we can have some kind of wisdom how we live with the Chinese government when they resume sovereignty in Hong Kong. So this is the basic of why I'm interested in what happening in China. So at the same time, I'm a Christian theologian, so that's why I study theology, I study Christianity, and so it is very normal for me to pay attention on what's happening about the Christianity, particularly in China. I was born and grew up in rural China. When I grew up, there was no religion. And I entered college in 1978 when there was also no religion back then. As after college, after I entered the graduate school, I first uh, became interested in Western philosophy and the philosophers talk about God. It was a curious thing for me. Why did those European philosophers all talk about God? It's also during those years, mid 1980s, religions are coming back to the public. So there are churches reopened, temples reopened. So I visited them. I got fascinated. After I received a master's degree from Nankai University, I became a professor of religious studies at Renmin University in 1987. Then in 1989, I got an opportunity to come to the U.S. And that's a very important year for the Chinese. Is here in the U.S., I saw so many Chinese began to convert to Christianity. And that eventually became the dissertation topic on Chinese Christians in America. So that's how I started uh, to get into this field. Now, this is really interesting. I, at least I find it interesting, the Christianity uh, in China. And both of you are either in case of you, Lapian, you study as a theologian, and you were attracted to this issue as well, the conversion to Christianity in the United States by Chinese immigrants. What do you both find fascinating about the Chinese engagement with Christianity? I began to do fieldwork research in China in 2000, as China became more open. And for my first publications on religion in China was titled, Lost in the Market, Saved at McDonald's. <laughs> A conversion of youth in urban China, mm -hmm. because I interviewed so many young people who became Christian. This is a kind of reaction to two things. One is the aftermath of 1989 Tiananmen Square suppression, and many people felt no hope. Then at the same time, market economy began to take off. So many people could find employment in private companies. But those market economy made them feel uncertain about life. Interesting. And so this economic situation and the political situation really helped them to open up, to seek meaning mm. and answer the question of why I'm here, why I'm doing this. It's also a globalization yeah. made it possible for people to learn about Christianity. So there's a demand for spiritual answers to their life questions. Then there's a supply of missionaries and evangelists. I see. So they met together and uh, attracted many young people. Anything to add to that, Lapian? Let me put it this way. Uh, it seems to me that Christianity, particularly in China, is seen as something related to the Western philosophy or Western value. I think you know, during the time of before 1978, you know, that is before you know, the open up of the Chinese government, you know, the people in China, they were locked you know, in a very closed you know, environment. So once it's open, people in China, they are looking for something different from they have received in the last 30 or 40 years. So the Western values or Western you know, philosophy are something new to most of the Chinese people because they would not have a chance to get to learn something about that. So, and then Christianity, more or less, something related to the Western values. So that's why they would consider there are some kind of association parallel between the Western values and philosophy or political ideology as well as the Christianity. So maybe this is one of the reasons 
why a lot of the young people during the time in late 1970s or 1980s, they would love to understand more about Christianity. So that's one of my observations. And the second observation that I think I'm not quite sure how true it is. Well, I left Hong Kong in the year 1989. A study in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Okay, not because of the Tiananmen. Right. Okay, <laughs> I just at the same time. So I went to Scotland to do my my further study there. So I met quite a number of uh, scholars or students coming from China mainland. So after a few months or a few years, we become friends. And some of my friends coming from China, they share with me one thing very interesting. They say to me that when they first come to Scotland. When they see the Roman Catholic priests or the Protestant pastors, they always have some kind of association that, you know, these people, they were not good guys. They always have some kind of sexual affairs with another girls, with another woman or something like that. And they were also the spy of the government. Mm. And they share with me that because these were the movies that right. they are, were used to watch during the time in the 1960 or 1950s. Okay, talking about you know, the priests in Poland, you know, they were not really right. free, you know, they, are doing, they were doing something wrong. So when they came to Scotland and they had a chance to meet you know, the Christian priest or pastor or something like that, so they shared with me that they took a few months or even a year to change their mind, really to meet these people. So one such kind of experience will appear in their mind. They share with me that they make a very important challenge to their way of thinking. That is to say, what they have received in the last 20 or 30 years during the time in the education in China, whether what they had received is truth or false or something like that. Okay. So in other words, I'm not saying that such kind of challenge can only come from the Christianity. But because of the atheist ideology of the Chinese government, Christianity is always portrayed as something bad, something imperial, something like that. But they have a different kind of experience when they study abroad. Maybe such kind of experience also help them or turn them to be more understanding of Christian faith. Is it mostly young people who are gravitating to Christianity? Because the way both of you guys portray it, it sounds like young people in particular are attracted Yes, for my experience, it's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think as more than the youth, so the young people certainly uh, began to turn to Christianity. Besides, they are changing views on the clergy, but they also many perceive Christianity as uh, compatible with uh, modernity. You know, modernization is one of the long-term pursuit of the Chinese in the last 150 years. And they feel Christianity is compatible Interesting. with modernity. That's uh, for young people. But Christianity began to grow very fast in the rural areas of China in the 1970s and mm. 1980s. Many converts, those less educated, older people, many converted because of miracles. They see it as miracles, very healing. That's 1980s, 1990s. In the 1990s, Christianity began to attract many young people in the urban areas after 1989 student movement. And nowadays, I see as really from all walks of life, there are people uh, turning to Christianity and at all different ages. And what are the estimates of Christians in China? The Chinese government report in 2019, they said, oh, there are 38 million Protestants and 6 million Catholics. But the actual number could be double that or even triple. Outside research centers say there are already 100 million Christians in China. Wow. Wow. And scholars would tend to put in a mid-rank as between 100 million and maybe 50 million. So it's maybe now, I think it's perhaps approaching 100 million. Wow. Wow. And here, the way China is portrayed in the media, religion tends to not be part of that portrayal. And in China itself, we tend to think of it as an atheist society since it has this communist government. But both of your work shows, and not just with Christianity, but there of other denominations. There are believers from several different religious denominations in China, from Buddhism to Islam to Christianity, amongst many others. 
Feng Gang, can you give us a sense of the religious atlas of China today? Yeah, uh, you mentioned Atlas. Uh, I think the book uh, Atlas of Religion in China is a good one. It's open access. Anyone, if you Google it, you'll be able to find the book and you can take a look. The book provides maps, charts, tables, and also some photos. So in the book, we try to provide an overall view of religion, the religious landscape. Officially, China allows for five religions. That's Buddhism, Taoism, Islam, Catholicism, and Protestant Christianity. But there are also many traditional folk religions, or some scholars call popular religions. These are communal, like village temples, or ancestor halls, or ancestor worship, and many new religious movements, or new spiritual movements shamans and the spirit mediums. So they are all active in China. The five official religions, uh, besides the officially approved religious sites, uh, temples, churches, and mosques, there are also so-called underground churches, Mm. underground Quran study schools. There are also some are hard to consider whether they are legal or illegal. They are in the gray area. Mm. Lapian, anything to add to the religious atlas? Oh, yeah. I think Fang Gang had uh, gave us a very, very good description of what's happening in China. But I just want to share one of my experience. As well, uh, Fang Gang has mentioned, you know, there are only five recognized religions in China. So if there are some religions that are not categorized within these five religions, how does the Chinese government categorize those religions? Okay, so there are two possibilities. Okay, one of the possibilities is what Feng Gang has mentioned. So they will be seen as some kind of folk religion or pop or popular religion. And then another third category is what they will say cult, mm. or evil cult or something like that. Now, I think probably uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years ago, there are some kind of religion popping up in China that make the Chinese government a little bit puzzled because they are not necessarily regarded as the recognized five mm-hmm. religions, but they are not belong to the folk religion, but they are not the evil cult. For instance, uh, the Jehovah mm. Witness or the Baha'i, you know, how... <laughs> In fact, there are some religious people coming from Baha'i, Jehovah Witness, no moment. They are still practicing in China. So how does the Chinese government recognize or understand this kind of religion? So that's why I forget probably in the year 2010 or 2009, something like that. Uh, at that time, the China Academy of Social Science in Beijing invited scholars studying in new religious movement coming from the America, from Hong Kong, as well as from Britain and from Europe, came to China to teach courses on new religious movement, Mm. (laughs) okay, in order to help some of the researchers coming from the China Academy of Social Science understand there is a new category called the new religious, Mm. okay, so they are not necessarily, you know, as understood as the traditional one, but they are not necessarily the evil cult. So because I was also involved in such kind of teaching, so it took about two or three years to offer such kind of courses to some of the senior officers in in the Chinese Hmm. government. So I think starting maybe from the year 2016 or 17, from the Blue Broad Book, the religion published in China, I find that they accept a new category called the Liu religion. Okay, apart from you know, the traditional five, the folk religion, and also the evil cult. So they give a new category called the new religion. So that's my experience. This poses an interesting question. What is the Chinese government's relationship to religion? So it has five recognized religions. What rights do those religions get? And how do they regard religions that don't fall into that category? You just said, Lapian, they're very interested and they actually went through the effort of learning about what they're now calling lived religions. So how do they regard different religious denominations? Feng Gang, you can start. Yeah, okay. I think it's a changing process. When China began the economic reforms in the late 1978, 
people began to learn about mm-hmm. religion, including those officials and official scholars in official academies. They realized that besides the traditional religions, there are some new types. I think for the traditional religions, in 1982, China revised the constitution and also the Chinese Communist Party released a document called the document number 19 that set the basics of religious policy. That one says modern societies allow religious freedom. So if your religion is official religion, you get the approval, then you can have your church or temple or mosque Mm. as the activity place. But you cannot proselytize outside the religious premises. Ah. And you cannot have young people to attend church or mosque, people under age 18. But otherwise, you can believe and practice and have pastors or other monks. So their rights may be somewhat restricted. Mm -hmm. There are different regulations to regulate that. But at the same time, they say, oh, we have religious feeling (laughs) because that's part of the United Nations norm. But for the non-recognized religions, they either treat you not as religion, then it can be culture, can be customs, tradition, then you can do certain things. But they can always say, oh, this is illegal because you are doing religion without approval. Right. Is it one of these cases where if you're doing these practices as small groups and individuals, it's okay, but when you start amassing a following, then it becomes a problem? Yes, exactly. I think the Chinese Communist Party is very worried about organized activities, Mm -hmm. including organized religious activities. Uh, In the 1980s, 1990s, many people uh, uh, gathered together to practice this physical exercise. Now it's called the qigong. It's a slow motion physical exercise, very much like a yoga. Initially, the government encouraged that because it helped people to find peace and may also have some health benefit. But when they became more organized, eventually some I call sectarian qigong groups, when you have key leaders and organization hierarchy, Mm. the government eventually banned sectarian qigong practices in 1999. I see. The best known case is the Falun Gong, right? But there are many other uh, sectarian groups Mm. of Qigong practice uh, got banned. Similar uh, for Christians, the same. Uh, If you have a dozen people gathered together for Bible study at people's homes, most times they were left alone. You can do it. But when you have several dozen people form a congregation, Mm. Then the government says, oh, that's too much. As organized religious activities is illegal. You have to go to the officially approved churches or you should not gather together again. I see. So Lapian, it sounds like, as Feng Yang said, it's about organization as opposed to belief. So how does the Chinese government repress these religious movements that they see as a problem? Uh, uh, Hong Kong has mentioned in November 1999, the Chinese government uh, had a new regulations or passed a new law called the Yi Fu Cult. Okay. Oh, I don't want to go into details. You know, how do you define right. the Yi Fu Cult? For instance, uh, it mentioned that if the cult leading to the death of more than two or three people, would be considered as evil cult, <laughs> you know. But sometimes, so how can you be sure that, you know, the people being killed or die, you know, something related to the cult or something like that, you know, but that's what happens. So it's true. I think my major concern is when the Chinese government think about religion, I think it is not just simply a matter of the ideological issue, like whether it is a atheism or not, but rather religion itself will be seen as a kind of mobilization. Right. Okay. So it will be very easy you know, to mobilize people whether they support the government or not supporting the government. So in other words, then, so it seems to me that, you know, the atheist ideology 
is only used as an ideology in order to monitor the whole society to make sure that you know they are not uncontrolled mm. mobilized but rather if such kind of mobilization is uh, issued by the government it is fine it's okay otherwise that it should not be uh, freely expressed so that's why it's the whole issue mm. so it seems to me that it is not just only a matter of atheist ideology right. but rather something related to the whole political issue right so then what is this relationship between politics does religion function as a mobilizing ideology or practice or community for politics like grassroots politics if there are protests challenges to chinese authorities does religion serve as an effective means of mobilizing people well, let me give you uh, some of the sure. examples here i think if we do not just focus on christianity for instance if we look at the issue of the islamic faith especially all the islamic faith in china related to the ethnic especially people coming from the western part of china so historically speaking i'm not here to argue whether xinjiang is part of china or not but from the chinese government xinjiang is a kind of separate is very easy to be inclined to separatism so when the ethnics and the islamic faith and the muslim when they work together they may be mobilizing something against the chinese government I think that is not only happened in Xinjiang, but also happened in Tibet. The the Tibetan ethics, right. as well as the Buddhism there, they are not Qing Chan Buddhism, but the Tibetan Buddhism. You know, the religion and the ethnic also you know, can work together to be a kind of friend right. to the legitimacy of the Chinese government. Right. Okay. But when we are talking about Christianity, so for the Chinese government, so the Christianity, no matter whether it is a Protestant or Catholic, so they are more easily associated with the so-called imperialism. Right. The Western people, you know, coming from the U.S. or coming from Europe, you know, they may make use of them to mobilize people, also become a threat. So that's why when I say, you no, know, the religion in China, it is not necessarily they are doing something to. Become a mobilizing power against the government, but rather they have the potential, they have the capacity to develop some such kind of mobilized power to be a threat to the government. Pengyang, anything to add? Yeah, I would add that I would say religious believers in China overall are not so political. Mm -hmm. It's because of the restrictions are very tight, as hard to. Become political in China, and also theologically for uh, Christians, Protestants,、uh, they are evangelical Protestants. They tend to be apolitical, not engage in political issues, as long as they have the freedom of、uh, practicing their faith and evangelize.、Uh, but that's the problem.、Uh, evangelization outside the church is not allowed. So if you follow that, then you cannot be. Authentic、uh, evangelical Christian,、mm -hmm. yeah. so they do resist in、yeah. that. So that becomes political. In a sense, we may say China. There's、uh, civil society is very underdeveloped、mm -hmm. uh, because it's simply very hard to organize uh, anything uh, outside of the government. But the churches emerged. Not the officially approved churches can become the. The center for mobilization for some local issues,、yeah. for example, the unapproved house churches. They are de facto the strongest, the largest civil society、mm. organization.、Right. They are very independent、mm -hmm. from the government. There are very few interference they would accept, and also in the last two decades, when there were. A movement called human rights lawyers. Those lawyers who fight for people's lost property, lost house, lost jobs. These civil rights lawyers. There's a high proportion of them are Christian.、Mm -hmm. I think about that. Why those human rights lawyers tend to become Christian? I think Christianity. Provide the theology for them to fight for social justice.、Right. 
And also, Christianity provide the spiritual sources for them to have inner peace mm. when they engage in this kind of fights. I see. Interesting. And does the Chinese diaspora play a role in with questions of religion in China, for example? Because a lot of people go back and forth, say, Chinese who are in America who maybe convert or are Christians, and they go back to visit China. Yeah, in the 1980s, the restoration of traditional temples, there are a lot of contributions from overseas Chinese. Uh, also in the 1980s, 1990s, overseas Chinese Christians became active in doing mission work in China. The networking is critically important for the continuous growth of Christianity. Actually, in China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, those are considered outside of the border. Mm -hmm. right? So Hong Kong played an important role, both for traditional Chinese religions and Christianity for the revivals uh, in mainland China. Right. Yeah, Lapian, you're in Hong Kong. So can you, <laughs> can you speak about this relationship of people outside, Chinese outside of the mainland's influence on religion in the mainland? Okay, well, in fact, this is true, you know, Hong Kong before 2020, okay, before 2020, that is the introduction of the national security, security law in right. Hong Kong. Okay, before that, okay. Uh, Hong Kong was a base for many of the Chinese, uh, many of the Christian as well as the pastor in China mm. came to Hong Kong to receive different kind of training, okay, theological training, okay. So such kind of theological trainings were not only provided by the churches as well as the seminaries in Hong Kong, but uh, for instance, like a uh, Christian in America, they came to Hong Kong to organize such kind of seminars for a few weeks of seminar, and then you know, in Hong Kong, and then the pastors as well as the Christian coming from China, they spend a few weeks in Hong Kong to learn something. I see. Okay, such kind of communication and dialogue had already been happening. And also, I would say that before 1950s in Hong Kong, the churches in Hong Kong were very small. So because China became a communist country in 1949, so a lot of the missionaries came to Hong Kong because they were so used to work in China mainland. So in other words, there was a vision or a commitment among the churches in Hong Kong. That is to say, we always want to bring the gospel back to our people mm. in China mainland. So in other words, then when China was opened up again in after 1978, so quite a number of churches as well as seminaries in Hong Kong, they went up to China to do different kind of evangelistic work, doing different kind of financial support you know, for the churches there and something like that. So in other words, I would say that from a uh, international relationship, Hong Kong was not only a financial and economic base for the Chinese government during the time in the 1970s and 80s to open up, but Hong Kong was also helping or supporting the development of the churches in China mainland during that time. We talked about the relationship with the state and Granted, to have both of you try to categorize in general terms a very diverse place like China, but nonetheless, I'll ask it, what is society's relationship to religion? Like people who maybe aren't believers, how do they regard religion in Chinese life? What's the kind of general population kind of consensus? Yeah, I would say China is an interesting case compared with many other countries. Even though the government suppression is high, especially now since 2018, but the social attitudes toward religion is more open. People do not have this kind of religious hostilities to each mm -hmm. other. Many are open to hear, to learn about different religions. In China, the Communist Party members are required to be declared atheists, and also the Communist Youth League also require that. But in reality, 85% of the Communist Party members hold some religious beliefs 
or engage some religious activities、mm. or spiritual activities.、Mm-hmm. So I would say the social attitudes to religion is quite open in China. Yeah, Lapian, you told us this story about what your experience in Scotland with Chinese students having this given a different view of religion based on their experience in Scotland. So, what would you say about social attitudes towards religion? Uh, it's hard to say. We don't well as what Fangai has mentioned that people in China they are not hostile、mm-hmm. to religion, even though many of the young people they receive. So-called materialist no education.、Right. <laughs> okay, they are educated not to believe in something called the spiritual or religion. Maybe for some of them, they will still insist of such kind of education or the materialist. But for instance, and also in Hong Kong, we have quite a number of students coming from China studying in、mm-hmm. Hong Kong for different reasons. I'm teaching in the university, so I have a lot of chance to meet the Chinese student in here. So once they come to Hong Kong, they are very, very open. You no, know, it seems to me, it's give me a thought. You no, know, they are very, very、mm. open to different religions. Okay, they are not necessarily turn to become a Christian, but they are very open to different kind of religions. You know, phenomena in Hong Kong. So it seems to me that they are more open than the local Hong Kong. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean, it, maybe it's possible that from what Fengang you said earlier, there seems to be, and we see this in many places around the world, a kind of with modernity ascent and, of course, economic insecurity. A kind of desire for something larger, or some meaning, or something to explain the world and one's place in it. What does this all mean? Would you attribute that to this kind of curiosity, or at least this openness? Is there an ideological crisis that's occurring in China that pushes or pulls people to religion? Yes, I would say so. During the economic reforms, there are multiple value systems become available to people, even though people are striving to get rich, but they also need me.、Yeah. And then, when they explore different value systems or different religions, may provide the answer they are looking for. So they are open to explore, especially. Once they get out of China,、mm-hmm. not only in Hong Kong, you see those Chinese students from mainland do that. In the U.S., Chinese students and visiting scholars from China, among the most open international student body to religion, and、mm-hmm. so many campus ministry organizations, as long as they、uh, welcome international students, is very, very often end up the largest、uh, international. National student group、uh, are the Chinese,、mm-hmm. so there are a lot of converts、uh, as a result.、Wow. But one thing I have to be admit that you know,、uh, quite still a huge number of the people coming from China they come to Hong Kong. They are very materialistic.、Yeah. Okay, they are emphasizing on earning money, spending, consumerism, and something like that. So there's still a huge amount of people in China. They are just focusing on getting a good material right. life. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, we are not always welcome. No <laughs> tourists coming from China coming to our place to spend money to boost up our economy. Yes, yeah. yeah. Here's a question from the audience: Is membership in a religious organization, whether it's official or unofficial, could could that affect somebody's employment or academic prospects? Is it a mark against you? Can you lose your job? Can you be kicked out of school? Something like this? That's for sure. For the government positions, for sure, religious members usually would not have any opportunity unless you become the decorative flower. <laughs> <laughs> China has changed in the last several decades.、Yeah. During the most open period, there were open. Religious organization members, some monks, some Christian elders, they could hold a professor, a faculty position at universities. It was okay, but in recent years, that has become increasingly difficult. So some of the people that I know,、uh, they had to retire early.、Mm. They had to quit. Or they could be fired、right. by the university if they are known. As active church members or other religious members, 
But until today, there are still, for example, Buddhist monks on faculty mm-hmm. at uh, several universities in China. So that's still possible. <laughs> but in middle school, high school, elementary schools, so there are again increased restrictions. So if you are known as active members of any religion, you could lose your job nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is it worth emphasizing though? So th- this comes back to a question that we were talking about a, a few minutes ago. Is this because of belief, or is it because of the potential of organization, or is it unfair to even draw that line in this case? I think it's hard to say. That, yeah, right. It's more of the increased emphasis of the atheist uh, ideology. First of all, as long as you a communist party member or communist youth league member. You are required to be atheist. Mm-hmm. If you are not atheist, you are already violated the party rule, the league rule. So you can be expelled for that. Right? And if you are not a communist party member or youth league member, your job prospect is much restricted. Mm. Many uh, employers, including some companies, they would say, "Oh, we prefer to have party members or communist youth league members." So if you are open practitioner of any religion, you do have fewer job opportunities. In I see. I agree to、uh, what Fangga has said, but I think、uh, what happening right now in China is that quite a number of people, you know, they are not necessarily working in the so-called government sectors.、Hmm. Well, it's true that you know, most of the, even though maybe all the universities in China mainly, they are publicly funded. So once you are a Christian, because of your Christian faith, you may have some difficulty to be recruited. But quite a number of the people, you know, if they work in a business sector or different kind of sector, so it seems to me that well, they're still unlike you know the time in the 1950s, 1960. Most of the sectors only have the government sector; they do not、right. have the so-called the private、right. sector. But right now, I think the environment is changing. So even though, as Wafeng Kang has said, it's true, but there's still a certain extent of possibility for religious people to get employment or something like that outside of the so-called government sector. Yeah, I see. I see. So here's another question from the audience: Considering that the Chinese government sees atheism as the ideal, you still have these officially designated religions. Is there one official religion that the government prefers over the others? In principle, that principle can be constitutional principle or the party charter principle. Everyone should be treated equally, and every religious organization should be treated equally. But that's only in, pr- in principle. In practice, of course, the government prefers those religions that tend to be more submissive.、Mm. Tend to be more obedient to the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. That translates more, for example, traditional Han Buddhism. The majority、uh, in China are Han people.、Mm-hmm. The, the Buddhism spread among the Han are、uh, Han Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, and Taoism.、Uh, uh, These、uh, more traditional Chinese religions they tend to emphasize more on. Obedience and submission to the political authorities. Right. Tibetan Buddhism, Islam,、uh, Catholicism, Protestantism—they have. They tend to have another authority, the moral authority or, or the religious authority, beside the political authority. Right. <laughs> so they tend to be suspicious. Yeah. Anything to add on that, Lapian? Well, yeah. Yes, it's, it's true. Can I also add one point、yes. here? Is this something also related to the nature of Buddhism and Taoism in China? That is to say, there are less organized、mm-hmm. religion, unlike the Muslim or another Islamic faith and the Christian faith. For instance, the Muslim and the Christians they are used to have meeting weekly. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, in other words, some kind of mobilization has already been taken place. But for the Buddhists, for the Taoists, they may have meeting maybe once or twice in every year、okay. rather than weekly. So in other words, that you know, so they are. It seems to me that they are not. They are not threatening as those other religions. Right. Yeah. 
Another question here is it, it whether, given the Chinese government's relationship with these five official religions, does it sometimes utilize them in international relations and in international politics in any way, or is that just not a sphere that the Chinese government plays with? Of course. Why yeah. not? <laughs> if you were in power, you would uh, try all of means course. Uh, to improve international <laughs> relations. And so back in the 1950s, 1960s, when the People's Republic of China was very much uh, isolated internationally, I think China reached out to Buddhist groups outside China, trying to get them help to improve the international relations. Mm -hmm. And of course, also with uh, Muslim countries, yeah. Islam as a means for that. Then I would say during the economic reforms era, between 1978 and 2012, China was very open to the West, to the world, and even Christians were welcomed. Right? And China did send out Chinese Christian delegations mm. to reach out to other parts of the world. For example, in, in the U.S., they organized, I think, at two times Bible exhibition. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. Somehow China became the country that print the most Bibles. China's Amity Printing Company really become the supplier of Bibles to the world, not only to China, but to the world. The China Christian Council organized a Bible exhibition, traveled around in major cities in the U.S. That's kind of uh, diplomatic, yeah. not only religious activity. Right, wow. And also, yeah, in, in the first decade uh, and the second decade of the 21st century, China organized a few times called the International Buddhist uh, Forum, inviting more than a thousand or sometimes two thousand Buddhist monks from around the world, mostly from Asia, Southeast Asia and overseas Chinese and gathered in China, uh, had a major event. Even the Chinese uh, central television huh. would uh, wow. broadcast about those events. Interesting. Well, there's lots mm -hmm. of potential ironies all involved with that. Like I, what stands out to me immediately is the Bible oh, thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me uh, add one sure. more. In recent years, the China's Belt and Road Initiative mm -hmm. along the Belt and Road, uh, China, I think, actively sending out Buddhist monks to plant Buddhist temples, huh. including in some European countries, and certainly active uh, in Southeast Asia. And they also send some monks to Africa. Interesting. Uh, I don't know if you can speak to this, and of course you can add to what Feng Yang has just said, but mm -hmm. I, I'm curious. We hear a lot about a kind of rise in Chinese nationalism. And is there a relationship between Chinese nationalism and religion? Let me put it this way. I would like to add sure. something as what Fang Gang has mentioned here. I think religion in the Chinese government hands is a kind of soft power. Yes. Okay. So it is a kind of soft power that they can make use of in order to build up different kind of relationship with other countries, like uh, what Fang Gang has mentioned about the Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Now, one, one, one thing I would like to add here is something related to Hong Kong and, and, and China. We can understand this in an international relations. You know, there is no official diplomatic relationship between the Chinese government and the Vatican, okay, until right now. But starting from the year 2018, there is a kind of agreement or a kind of consensus between the Vatican and the Chinese government on the issue of the appointment of BB shops in China. Mm. Okay, but we do not know the details of the agreement or consensus between these two governments. So that is what happened in the 2018. Okay, now the point here is that in this year, that's in April, the bishop of the Catholic Church in Hong Kong was invited by the Beijing bishop in China to make an official visit to the Beijing Catholic. Mm -hmm. Maybe it doesn't make any international relationship. I think that is something very in important here. Yeah. Because according to my understanding, there is a kind of consensus between these two governments, mainly on the issue of the appointment of bishop. 
But right now, since 1994, before the Chinese government resumed the sovereignty over Hong Kong, there was no bishop visiting China because there was no agreement or there is no ties between these two governments, that is the Vatican and the Chinese government. But it seems to me that maybe in the near future, there will be more close contact between the Vatican and the Chinese government through Hong Kong. Yeah. Okay. So in other words, one of the impacts is that maybe the Vatican will stop the diplomatic relationship with the Taiwan. Ah. Okay. So Vatican is the only country in Europe still have the di- diplomatic tie with Taiwan, but we do not know in the near future. So it seems to me that right now the Chinese government also make use of the Catholic Church in China mainland in order to build such kind of diplomatic relationship in order to isolate Taiwan from getting involved into the international scenes. Yeah. So that is one point that I would like to add. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and what about this question of relationship with nationalism, Chinese nationalism and religion? Well, <laughs> let me put it in this way. All the religions recognize religion in China mainland. They have to add a word called the patriotic. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> okay. So like something like the Free Self-Patriotic Association. So that is talking about the Protestant church. So when talking about the Catholic church, they are also talking about the China Patriotic Catholic Association. Ah, and then the Buddhism and the Taoism, <laughs> they always have to put the word patriotic. Ah. Uh-huh, of <laughs> <Okay>. course. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think this is not only the name to use the word patriotic, but it also makes an implication to all the religions. That is to say, the first loyalty that you have to submit to is the not the government, but the communist party. I see. Okay. I see. So that is the basic. So in other words, that all the organization has to submit it to the government. And on the other hand, then you also have to synthesize, yes. okay, or to synthesize your theology, your religion, in order to accommodate yourself to the so-called the patriotic ideology. So that's what happening. I see. Anything to add on that, Feng Yang? Yeah. yeah, I would distinguish nationalism and patriotism. Mm-hmm. I think the believers of five major religions or other religions even include those so-called evil cults <laughs> followers. <laughs> they are patriotic. I think they love China. They, they are patriotic, most of them, uh, the vast majority of them. Uh, but that does not necessarily uh, become nationalist. Yeah. Uh, when you think about national, it's, it's a loaded word uh, in the U.S. Of course. We know that's a <laughs> political thing. That tend to be exclusive, divisive. But in China, I would say religions, they do love China, the country. Only that it has become politicized, especially in recent years. Religious believers are required to not only love the country, but also love the party. Mm. That got turned off some people. Yes. But otherwise, I would say if you, you do think hard in the ethnic minority regions, the ethnic religion could become the basis for ethnic nationalism. The Uyghurs in Xinjiang and Tibetans in Tibet, that ethnic religion can support the separatist effort. But that's in China, over 90% of the people are Han Chinese, Mm -hmm. Han as the majority. I See, they are patriotic, but very few turn to be nationalistic. Uh-huh. I see. So there's nothing in terms of Han national identity. There isn't a, a strong religious component or a religious component being interwoven into it. Yeah, not the religions that we know, even though there's another factor that's Confucianism. Right. Confucianism is not recognized as a religion. But in recent years, there have been revivals of Confucianism as a grassroots level movement, but also the government tried to use it. And that could provide support for 
Han Chinese nationalism. I see. I see. But that's not clearly religious because most people don't regard Confucianism as a religion. I see. I just have a, one more question for our guests. So if you have any questions, please put them in the chat. Finally, when you're looking at the religious landscape of China,、uh, how do you fit it into, say, a, the global context of rising religiosity that we've been seeing over the last thirty, forty years? Do you see similar trends? Again, I'm going back to what you said earlier, Fengyang, about the the crisis of modernity or the ideological crisis. People looking for meaning. So, how do you put religion in China in a global comparative context? Let's start with you, Lapian, if you would. Well, let me say it this way. So it's quite depend on how we understand the rising religiosity over the last thirty years. For instance, people will, especially during the time in nineteen seventies, we know that there was a rise of the religious fundamentalism. Okay, so that is well happened. Well, in the U.S., though、so、you were talking about the Christian right or right. religious right or the moral ma- majority, and also the Islamic fundamentalism. So, if we follow in this way, then I do not see much happening in China in the last fifty years. But、uh, during the time in nineteen eighties, most of the time when we study about religion, especially for instance, like when we are talking about the situation in Latin America and talking about in East Asia. So most of the time, when we look at the religion, we are more inclined to associate with the development of the civil society、mm. and the democracy and something like that. So that's why people pay much attention on the role of religion. But、uh, I am not quite sure, you know, how this happened in the last thirty、uh, years. But starting from late eighties or nineteen nineties, there is a kind of what we call the new age movement.、Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is also happening. In the West, I can't. We talk about the spiritualities and something like that. They use the word spirituality instead of religion. That、right. is more common understanding of the rise of the religiosity. I think that is something happening right now, also in China mainland. But maybe they are taking a very different direction from the West. So maybe in the West, when we are talking about the religiosity, it is more. Individualistic, okay, but maybe in China, I'm not quite sure. It seems to me that it still can also be understood more inclined to individualistic, but it is still more, you know, expressed in a more communal、mm. way. Okay, that is what we call the church. We call about the about the temples and something like that. So maybe there is something different the development when we are talking about the religiosity.、Mm-hmm. Pingyang, yeah, I live in the U.S. In the U.S., we see organized、uh, religions losing members. Yes, in the last two decades, the decline of Christian churches is a steady, you know, a steady decline. And so, some scholars begin to say, "Look, the U.S. has joined Europe <laughs> in secularization." But the problem is, when you look around the world, it's not the case. Most of the post-socialist countries. Have seen growth of religion,、mm-hmm. and in China, China remains a socialist under communist rule. Religion has been increasing for sure. The lowest point was in the 1960s or 1970s, when China totally banned religion. It's interesting. China was only one of the two countries that ever banned religion. In the Soviet Union, at least a few hundred churches remained open、mm-hmm. throughout history, but Albania and China totally banned religion.、Mm. In China, the ban lasted for 13 years between 1966 and 1979. But since then, we have seen steady growth of all kinds of religions. In terms of religiosity, traditional Chinese、uh, practice religion often very individualistic. They do not like to join any particular organized religion,、mm-hmm. even though they believe and practice. But I see the trend as more and more people are open and actually join organized religion. Interesting. Uh, Christianity, in particular, but I think even Buddhism becomes more organized nowadays than before, because Buddhism is becoming modernized itself. Right. 
So in China, I would say the pattern of religiosity is becoming more like traditional American religiosity, where organized religion is the norm, the mainstream. Hmm. In the U.S., the religiosity is becoming more like traditional China. Chinese religiosity. <laughs> I see. <laughs> because most of the people uh, who uh, lost affiliation still believe and practice. They just don't want to join any particular right. church. In, in one of my articles, I call this a China-America phenomenon. <laughs> there are conversions. China becomes more close uh, to conventional America. America becomes more conventional Chinese <laughs> in terms of religiosity. Interesting. Our conversation is full of interesting ironies, I have to say. <laughs> uh, here's a question from, from the audience, and I'll just read it here. Other than concerns from, from the Chinese government, do you think that there are also concerns from outside China regarding Catholicism's growth in China? For example, with China's huge population, if the Vatican opens the voting for Chinese clergy, the choosing of bishops, is it possible that there might be a Chinese pope one day based on if there are more and more converts to China? This person is just curious about what is the future of Catholicism and its influence. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, but all, but but we have to know that the selection of pope is not based on vote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> based on the members of the cardinal, right. okay, but the cardinal is not based on the size of the Catholic population. Of course, yeah. of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I think it's important to know, actually, the, the number of Catholics in China may not be growing. Yeah. There's a possibility that there may be a slight decline mm. of the number of Catholics for multiple reasons, for complicated reasons. From my understanding, that's a global trend as well, right? But it's different. In South Korea, Catholicism is doing pretty oh, well. Okay. You know, 10% of Koreans have a Catholic, another almost 20% are Protestant. But in China, actually, I think the Pope may have worried that the number of Protestants in China has been growing, but the Catholics uh, not. Uh, and so really try hard to reach out to China to establish relationship in order to make the church ministry improve. Mm. But I don't see any momentum of more Chinese got attracted to Catholicism. Let me see. Anything to add, Lapian, on this issue? Let me add, add one point here, because coming from the Hong Kong experience, the Catholic in Hong Kong, for instance, the Cardinal Sin Chen, he said, yeah, he always mentioned one point is that when the Vatican established some kind of relationship with the Chinese government, the major issue is how about those being persecuted mm. Catholic? Okay, so that is to say, how about those they are the underground Catholic? They always show the loyalty to the Vatican, and they do not want to build up a kind of relationship with the Chinese mm -hmm. government. Okay, and they do not want to go to the so-called approved right. churches. But now the issue is that when the Vatican normalizes a kind of relationship with the Chinese government, so what should the stand of those what we call the underground Catholic, you know? What they have suffered in the last 50 or 60 years is something because of the mistake, <laughs> what they have done. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure, you know, because I have not had a chance to talk to the to the so-called underground, you know, Catholic in, in China, whether they feel they are betrayed, mm, betrayed right. by the Vatican or not. Yeah. So that is one of the issues coming up in Hong Kong, when we are talking about some kind of normalization relationship right. between the Vatican and the Chinese government. Yeah, this goes back to the issue of soft power that you raised. Yeah. You know, if there are no more questions, uh, we'll wrap up. But I, I want to give each of you a chance to uh, say something you didn't get a chance to say or clarify a point um, that you want to make. Uh, Lapian, let's start with you. Is there anything you'd like to add to that you didn't get a chance to say? Uh, no, I, I uh, it's fine for me. Said it all. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, I'm satisfied. <laughs> Feng Yang? Yeah, about the Catholic thing, let me say a little bit more. 
when the People's Republic of China established in 1949, there were three million Catholics and one million Protestants. Uh, nowadays, there may be six million, up to nine million Catholics, but at least 38 million Protestants, maybe 80 million Protestants. So this is a big reversal. I think a key, again, I think the Chinese perceive Protestants more compatible with modernity more than the Catholics. Yeah. That's one explanation. Then the division of the Catholic Church in China between the above ground and the underground, that also indeed has hurt Catholic growth. Uh, there's a lack of solidarity, lack, lack of united effort mm -hmm. of reaching out. So they have underground Catholics and above ground Catholics, the bishops may fight against each right. other. So the Vatican really tried to unify the Catholic Church. They try very hard in sacrifice, but uh, it has not achieved the goal. After four years, five years of the agreement between the Vatican and China, so far, really, China has taken advantage of this to try to reduce the underground mm -hmm. conflicts, underground bishops or no longer bishops, but the above ground bishops that the Vatican has accepted them to be bishops. So the future of the Catholic Church at this moment is not very promising, right. no matter how the Vatican tries. Yeah. They have tried different things, but not very successful so far. Interesting. Yeah. So religious change in China in the future, I think Buddhism will still be very popular. But I think Christianity continues yeah. to attract more people, even though the repression has uh, become intensified in the last five years. Mm -hmm. We still see very active Christian evangelism in China. Yeah. I, I want to thank you both for sharing your expertise with us. And those of you who attended live this conversation, I learned an immense amount. Uh, so I, I thank both of you for that. Yeah, thank you. It's really happy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That was Fin Gang Yang and Kun Lap Yan. Fin Gang Yang is a professor of sociology and the founding director of the Center on Religion and Global East at Purdue University. He's the author of numerous books, including The Atlas of Religion in China, Social and Geographical Contexts, Religion in China, Survival and Revival Under Communist Rule, and Chinese Christians in America, Conversion, Assimilation, and Adhesive Identities. He's also the co-editor of more than 10 books. Kung Lapian is an associate professor and director on the Center for Quality Life Education and the Dean of the Institute of Advanced Study in Asian Cultures and Theologies at the Divinity School of Chengchi College at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. His research focuses on religion and society, Christian ethics and theology, and he is the author of numerous books in both Chinese and English. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is The Eurasian Knot. The Eurasian Knot, as you know, is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. I cannot stress enough how important it is for you to take a moment, become a patron, help support us in all the things we do, provide good editing, good interviews, good equipment, etc. So if you like this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash and become a patron. Well, until next time, bye.